Well, good afternoon. I wanted to um, give another plug for the Banner of Truth booth, and you might think, why are we plugging them? Are they paying us a lot of money for that? Um, two reasons, briefly, that we, we are. One is that, uh, as Brooks said, we know we can trust their resources. Um, we love for our students to read them. I love for people in my church to read them. Uh, one I would tell you to pick up is this little book on the biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Brooks and I would both tell you that we would love to see every radio student read this biography. I'd love to see the members of my church read this biography. It's quite helpful. I'm not going to say much more because I'm already behind time and I haven't even started. Um, so, uh, but it's excellent. The other thing I wanted to say is about Banner of Truth and the reason I want to plug them, and I hope you go out and buy a bunch of their books, is they give radio students books for free. Um, all they want for free, that comes out of their budget. Um, so they've been incredibly kind to our ministry, and we want to return that kindness by getting good resources into your hands. If, if you will, turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. I'm going to have you read there. I, I do want to um, sort of, before I jump into the text introduced the text by saying that I am privileged by God's grace to serve with two um, incredible groups of people. Uh, I get to serve with the Radius board and staff um, to raise up people who go out um, to the unreached peoples of the earth. That's a great privilege I've had for many, many years now. Um, people who put everything on the line for the sake of the gospel getting to the unreached. And I have the privilege of serving with elders and church members who put so much on the line to see our own missionaries supported, to see Radius supported. Um, it's, it's really incredible. In fact, my own, my own elders, when we were starting Radius, I went to them and said, we're going to start this organization. We have to buy this campus. We have to hire staff. It's going to be a few hundred thousand dollars to get it started. And my elders um, said, well, well, we'll do whatever it takes. And we were the first supporting church. And I said, what is there, whatever it takes me. And they said, we have 150000 in the bank. If we have to spend it all, we'll spend it all. We were a little church of 100 people at that time. And I said, we'll spend it all. Yep. Um, and we put everything on the line, and the Lord blessed that. And I can't tell you what a privilege it is to serve with those kind of people, to serve alongside of them. Why do we do what we do? Because we love Christ, we love his gospel, and we love his church. That's why we do what we do. It, and it is Christ and the gospel that I really want to focus on this afternoon. A couple of years ago at our conference here, I think at the downtown campus for Bethlehem, um, I covered the evangelistic preaching of the apostles in Acts. I just went through the various evangelistic sermons and acts and showed what their preaching looked like. And what I want to do today is see where they learned the gospel from Jesus and how they were told by Jesus to preach the gospel. I want to look at those two things. Where do they learn the gospel from Jesus and, and how did Jesus teach them to preach the gospel? So with that said, look with me at Luke 24. And I'll begin reading in verse 44. If you know the context, Jesus has resurrected from the dead, and he is meeting with his disciples. He's just ate with them, or he's just eaten with them, they've touched him, etc. And then we read this in verse 44. Then he said to them, 
These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we hear your word, we would receive it for what it is, the word of God, that we would know that Christ, the head of the church, is speaking by his spirit through the word to us. Not only did the spirit superintend this gospel for Luke's audience in the first century, but for the church in every age. We pray we would receive it as such. Cause us to understand what Jesus is saying to his apostles and what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Give us ears to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to tackle this passage really, um, if you will, for for lack of a better term, around five principles regarding our gospel preaching. Five principles regarding our gospel preaching. First, we preach the gospel that has biblical foundations. We'll look at that in verses 44 and 45. Second, we preach the gospel, and I'll go over these again, so don't worry. We preach the gospel that was historically accomplished. We'll look at that in verses 45 and 46. Third, we preach the gospel among all nations as commanded. We'll look at that in verses 47 and 48. Fourth, we preach the gospel by the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. We'll look at that in verse 49. And fifth, we preach the gospel that is attended with Christ's blessing. We'll look at that in verses 50 through 53. So let's look at the first point. We preach the gospel that has biblical foundations. Look with me at verses 44 and 45. Then he said to them, this is Jesus speaking to the apostles, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Now we'll look at those words from Luke 9 in a minute, but just hold on to that for now. These are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the Torah, and the prophets and the Psalms or the writings must be fulfilled. These are the three parts of the Jewish scriptures or the Jewish canon. He's referencing the whole of the Old Testament here. 
as we know it now, the 39 books of the Old Testament, the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the prophets, which we would call the historical books, they would call the former prophets, and then the prophets, which we would call uh, the, the latter prophets, or um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, we will break those into major and minor prophets. And by major and minor, we just mean these are big, long books, and these are little short books. That's all we mean, right? And so he's talking to them from the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, which is another way to reference the writings, that, that part of uh, the Jewish canon we refer to as Psalms and Proverbs and Job and Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs and um, Ezra and Nehemiah and Ruth, and we could just keep going there. First and Second Chronicles, etc., are in those books, or in those sec that section. He preached to them from those books of the Old Testament. And he said, Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now look at verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Please note this. Jesus. Jesus did not even preach the gospel without pressing his disciples to the scriptures. And without giving them the illumination of the Holy Spirit by which they might understand the scriptures. Even the resurrected Christ believed when he taught his apostles he ought to do it by expositing the word of God. Let that sink in for a second. If you think we're going to do it some other way. The resurrected Christ pointed them to the word. And he has the ability to illumine their minds to understand the scriptures. I don't get to send the Holy Spirit forth when I preach. Um, the Lord does that. Uh, but Jesus got to. So he had an advantage over all the rest of us. <laughs> but I want you to look back at how this is the constant ministry of Jesus. You guys remember the story just before this, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And if you remember, when they're on the road to Emmaus, Jesus comes alongside of them. They're a bit bewildered because the Messiah, the man they believe was the Messiah, had been crucified. And they heard that his tomb was empty, that the women had seen him resurrected from the dead, and they weren't sure what to make of these things. There was quite the stir in the area. And as they were walking, Jesus appeared and walked with them. But Jesus did something that's, I would say, pastorally shocking. These men were bewildered. Bewildered. They were suffering, if you will. They weren't sure what to make of what just happened with the man they thought was the Messiah, with the details they heard about the empty tomb. They were confused. And you would think this is the time for Jesus to appear to them and show them his resurrected glory and clear up their confusion and shore up their faith. But that's not what Jesus does. He appears to them, and look at what it says in verse 16. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. In some way, their vision was supernaturally occluded so that they couldn't recognize who he was. Now, we know the apostles see him and recognize him. They even touch where his wounds are. But in this case, these disciples are occluded from seeing who he is for a time. Jesus then goes on to teach as they talk about the things happening in Jerusalem and they say, have you not heard about what's happened in Jerusalem? Jesus goes on to teach them. Look at what he says down at verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe 
all that the prophets have spoken. I'm going to take you back to the Old Testament because you don't believe the Word of God. And then he goes on and says, and beginning with Moses, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What does the resurrected Christ believe his disciples need most? They need to be taught the word of God. They need to be taught the word of God. Now you would think, and I know you think this because you're probably just like me. It would sure clear a lot of things up if the resurrected Christ would just appear for me. (laughs) Sure make this whole faith thing a little easier to buy into. That's not what Christ does. Now they go on and they sit down for a meal and they break bread. And when they break bread, their eyes are opened. And they recognize him for who he is. And he vanishes. And we read this fascinating response. They've now heard him teach the scriptures. They've broken bread with him. And then now they see him in his resurrected glory. And he vanishes. Their comment on that is amazing. Look at verse 32. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? They, they, didn't our hearts burn within us when he opened to us the scriptures? Not, wasn't that amazing to see the resurrected Lord of glory sitting in front of us eating bread with us? He walked on the road with us. Why didn't we recognize him before? What was happening spiritually there? They comment on not that. They comment on the fact that their hearts burned within them when Jesus opened to them the scriptures. It's imperative that our gospel proclamation is fundamentally a ministry of preaching the word. We preach Christ and him crucified and resurrected, and we do it from every page of Scripture beginning with Moses. For we know that this word is God-breathed and is to be preached in season and out of season. We know that the word of God will never return void, but will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent forth. We know that the word of God is a more sure word. A more sure word. For we know that men, it was produced as men spoke or wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, any so-called gospel ministry which fails to be centered on teaching the Bible is a ministry that is absent of the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that? As 17th century pastor Matthew Poole has said, the devil cheats those souls whom he persuades to cast away the scriptures in expectation of a teaching by the Spirit. The Spirit teaches by not without, not contrary to the Holy Scriptures. As Christians, we ought to follow the example of Jesus as even the resurrected Christ proclaimed the Scriptures 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I suppose the first point that I'm getting at in our gospel proclamation that you see played out in the lives of the apostles because they learned it from Jesus is that when you preach the gospel, you do it from the scriptures. When the Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost, Peter stands up in front of them and does what? He begins to preach from Joel 2. And he preaches from Psalm 16. And he preaches from Psalm 110. When Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch on the road, he's reading Isaiah 53, and Philip begins to teach from that scripture. We see it again and again. In Acts 14, when... 13? I gotta think about that for a second. When Paul's preaching to a Jewish crowd, he points, and Gentile crowd, he points them back to Isaiah 49. It's again and again and again they're teaching from the scriptures. So the Spirit inspired 66 books of the Protestant canon are the biblical foundation of the gospel. And our gospel preaching should be Bible teaching. That's what I'm driving at. Secondly, we preach the gospel that was historically accomplished. We preach the gospel that was historically accomplished. Look at Luke 24 and verse 46. He had opened their mind to understand the scriptures, verse 45, and said to them, Thus it is written, again referencing the scriptures, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. The Old Testament, what Jesus is saying is, the Old Testament taught that the Christ must suffer and die and then enter into glory, that that must happen. And Jesus is saying that he has fulfilled that just as he taught them he would. If you look up at Luke uh, 24, 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. In other words, prior to my crucifixion and resurrection, I, told, I taught you the Old Testament that I must, from the Old Testament, I've learned that I must suffer and die and rise from the dead and then enter into glory. Now I'm doing that again. I'm teaching you that again. But where does Jesus teach them this? In his ongoing daily ministry, where does he teach them this? Well, look at Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Keep your hand in Luke 24. I'm going to take you on a little tour of the Bible. I'll try to keep it as short as I can. But I'm not going to make any promises you'll be at break on time. I, I, I would be close to promising that had there, had there not been a uh, 10 minutes cut off of the promise time they gave me. Um, I'm giving Joe a hard time right now. So look at Luke chapter 9 and verse 21. And for context, this is a parallel passage to what you see, for example, in Matthew 16, when the apostles come to Jesus and they say, listen, people have been saying you're Elijah, you're one of the prophets, you're this, you're that. And Jesus says, who do you say I am? And their answer to that question is, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. Verse 21, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, now listen, here's what he tells them. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This Christ, this Messiah, was going to suffer and die and then raise from the dead. And here's the question, why 
do we need him to do this? Why do we need him to do this? Why is it necessary that the Christ come and suffer and raise from the dead? We could say it's necessary because God decreed it would be so in eternity past, and God prophesied it would be so in the word of God. We could say it's necessary just for those reasons alone. But I want to ask a different question. Why is it necessary for us that he do this? Why is it necessary for us? In order to understand that, I need to take you back further in the story. But I don't want you to take your hand out of Luke 9. So keep your hand there. And travel with me all the way back. We're going to do what Jesus did. We're going to begin with Moses. So go to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We know the story in Genesis. Moses is bringing the people out of Egypt in the exodus toward the promised land. And he is inspired to write the scriptures we have recorded here so that the people understand Um, In writing, not just through oral tradition, who this God is who's bringing them out of Egypt, what he has done, why they're in the straits that they're in, and why God has chosen to be kind to them. And so he begins to lay this out, first by telling us that the God who's bringing you out of Egypt is the God who created all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's everything. That's a Hebrew merism. It's everything. He created it all by the word of his mouth. He spoke it and it came to be. God created all of this and he ordered it. He formed things and he filled them. Day one, let there be light and light was and he separated the light from the darkness. Day four, sun, moon, and stars. One to govern the night and one to govern the day. He's forming and he's filling. You can go and do that with day two and day five and day three and day six, and you're going to see the pattern. He's forming and filling all things in an orderly fashion by the Spirit through his Son. We learn that in Hebrews 1, John 1, Colossians 1, etc. He's doing this work. That's the God who created us. But look specifically at day six in the creation of man, where the text slows down in the creation account and drives us into a deliberation. It's told to us intentionally this way to to get our attention. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There's a lot to say about what it means to be an image bearer of God, but, but let me just focus on this. Let me focus on this. An image bearer reflects the image that it bears. That sound, sounds redundant. But think about this when you go to a mirror. You go to a mirror, that's an image bearer. You go to a mirror and you see the truth about yourself. Right? The older you get, the more you forget how you look. <laughs> And the more the mirror tells you the story that you don't like to hear, right? And you, oh, that's the truth about me. The mirror tells you the truth about you, if you will. Image bearers were supposed to reflect the truth about God. And minimally, we can say, we can say a lot more about image bearing, but minimally, we can say they were to reflect God's character to the world. They were to reflect his glory to the world. 
He created them for that purpose. That's why he created us. And he blessed them. Verse 28, the first word they hear in the creation is a word of blessing. And he blessed them. And upon blessing them, he commands them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, I don't want to deal with the rest of the text. I just want you to focus here. They as image bearers who reflect the character of God or the glory of God are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with the glory of God. That was their original commission. God, we then, if you will, God focuses us in on the sixth day in chapter 2 and tells us about the creation of Adam and Eve in more detail and tells us about these trees that he planted in the garden that he made grow up there. One of those trees, the tree of life that you may eat from to live forever. The other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now there are many other trees they may have eaten from, but these two trees are singled out. And Adam is told, you may eat from any tree in the garden, but you may not eat from the tree that's in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You may not eat of that tree. And what's coming if you eat of it? For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. If you sin against me, if you rebel against my command, you will incur the judgment of death. That's what's coming. Be clear about that. You sin against God, you incur, incur the judgment of death. And so he lays that out for them. We, to speed the story up, then find Adam and Eve together in the garden, and a serpent, if you will, ominously, slithers into the garden and begins to tempt Adam's wife and lie to her and deceive her. And Adam and Eve then willfully eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The fundamental challenge there seems to be the serpent saying to Adam and Eve, God's not really good, is he? Look what he is keeping from you. Well, he gave us all the trees in the garden. Yeah, but, but he's keeping one from you. One that's really good for you. Can you really believe he's good? And so they take and they eat. Verse 6 of chapter 3. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. She had to go finding him. He was right there. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made, loin, made themselves loincloths. They sinned against God. They incurred guilt for their rebellion. They knew justice was due to them. They incurred as a result of that guilt the relational consequence of shame. They tried to cover that shame and hide in fear from God. As he comes walking through the garden in the cool of the day, they're hiding in fear of him. A God whom they dwelt with, who was good to them, who was kind, whose presence they were privileged to be in, they now hid from, covering their shame from one another, afraid of the judgment of God, rightly afraid of it. And God comes and begins to speak to them. You know the dialogue. I won't go over it. But at the end of speaking to them, he then 
brings the curse. If you remember, the first word Adam and Eve hear is a blessing. And now they're going to hear a curse. The curse of death coming because of sin. The curse of death coming because of sin. You know what happens at the end of Genesis 3. They get kicked out of the garden. They're expelled from God's presence because of sin. They're expelled from his presence. They're separated from him. They can't re-enter because there are cherubs there with a flashing or a flaming sword. And if they try to walk back in, they'll incur the judgment of death from coming into a holy God's presence as sinners who are guilty. But in the midst of dropping that curse, it's, if you will, deeply encouraging that the first word they hear is the gospel. They've just sinned. God begins to curse them, and they hear the gospel. I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. There is a seed of the woman coming, a second Adam, who will conquer Satan's sin and death. And we know something about him, that he's the one who's going to bring life out of death, which has been incurred because of guilt. And there's going to be something about a substitutionary sacrifice involved with that. How do we know that? Because what happens after the curse is the man changes Eve's name. Prior to this, in Genesis 2, he calls her Isha. Now he calls her Hava, which means Eve. Or, here's the translation, the man called his wife's name Eve, listen to what Moses says, because she was the mother of all living. In other words, Adam was believing the promise that the seed of the woman would come through Eve and save him. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The Lord covers their guilt and shame by slaughtering animals, offering some sort of blood sacrifice, and close them. And we begin here, I spend time there, a lot of my time there, because I want to emphasize that we begin here with understanding that sin has brought the penalty of death, separation from God, being banned from his presence, and that God, in his grace, in what we would call the mother promise, Genesis 3.15, or the first gospel, the Proto-Evangelion, God promised to send the seed of the woman, and he also said something to us about the notion of substitution. So we know there's a seed of the woman coming, a second Adam coming, a Messiah or Savior coming, and they're somehow involved in that story, something that has to do with blood sacrifice and substitution and we begin to see that progressively unfold through genesis so that we learn that the seed of the woman is not just coming from mankind or humanity but the seed of the woman is coming specifically from abraham or the nation of israel so it's been narrowed down to abraham and through abraham's seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed and even in the story of Abraham, we learn uh, some relationship between the seed of the woman or the son of Abraham and blood sacrifice. Because we come to Genesis 22 and Abraham takes his firstborn son, Isaac, up onto the mountain to offer him. And God provides a substitute, a ram 
who's slain in Isaac's place. And then we hear this word from the Lord that there is a son coming who will possess the gates of his enemies, who will bless all the nations. And we continue to look forward to him. And as the story unfolds, Isaac has Jacob. And then Jacob, 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And then in Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12, we learn that this seed of the woman is not only coming from humanity in general, not only coming from the nation of Israel in specific, but even more specifically, is coming from the tribe of Judah. And it's being narrowed for us. Now Israel is in Egypt. If you guys remember the end of Genesis, they go down to Egypt. And when they're in Egypt, when they're in Egypt, they over time, come under slavery to Pharaoh. God had prophesied this would happen. It happened. They come under slavery to Pharaoh. They've grown into a nation, no longer a family. They've, God has blessed them and made them fruitful, and they've multiplied. They're now a nation in slavery, and they're crying out to God, and he hears them, and he remembers his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he sends a deliverer named Moses. And when Moses comes, God says to Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go, that they might come out and worship me. And he says it in this language, and I want you to hear it because it's not unimportant. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Isaac was Abraham's firstborn son who went up onto the mountain. Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. But Pharaoh would not let Israel go. As you all know, his heart was hardened. Ten plagues we walk through until we get to the culminating plague, the tenth plague, the Passover. The angel of the Lord would sweep through Egypt in judgment for sin, and he would strike down every firstborn son of every family. Hear that, it's important. He wasn't just going to strike down the firstborn son of every Egyptian family. Why the firstborn son? Because the firstborn son represents the family. The whole family, the whole household is represented therein. I'm going to strike down the firstborn son of every family, not just Egyptians, but Jews as well. Why? Because you're all sinners, and the angel of the Lord is coming in judgment for sin. And he's coming against you all. But God provided a substitute again on behalf of a firstborn son. He's following the story here. He provides a substitute. It says, take the lamb at Passover, this Passover lamb, slaughter the lamb, and put its blood on the doorposts of your homes. Bring in the Egyptians who want to come in too. And you'll be saved. The angel of the Lord will come, and the substitute will have stood in the place of the firstborn son, would stood in the place of your household, that lamb that was slain, and blood was shed. He'll stand in your place and you'll be spared God's judgment. You'll be saved. And you know what? Take a hyssop branch and spread that blood on the door with a hyssop branch. And when we hear that, we ought to hear David singing in Psalm 51, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me 
and I shall be whiter than snow. They were to apply that blood that way. And they were delivered from slavery to Egypt by the blood of the Lamb. And this event led to their exodus. What's the exodus? Their departure up from Egypt. You always went down into Egypt. If you look, notice the biblical language, you always come up out of Egypt. And they went through the Red Sea and into the wilderness at Mount Sinai. And they went up to Mount Sinai to worship the Lord. And at Mount Sinai, they were given the Mosaic Covenant, which included the law and the sacrifices and the priesthood and the tabernacle. And they were consecrated as his people for the purpose of worship. Now, I want you to grasp how these are functioning as types, as pictures, as something pointing forward to something even greater. I don't want you to miss it. Slavery in Egypt is a picture of slavery to sin and death. The Passover is a picture of substitutionary death, a picture of another making atonement for us, the lamb being slaughtered in our place. On the lamb was placed our sin and judgment so that we might be forgiven our sins, so that we might be saved. The Passover sacrifice of the lamb is a type of what was coming in Christ. That's why John the Baptist sees him and declares what? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's why Jesus at the Last Supper, at the Passover meal, can break the bread and hand them the cup and say, this is the cup, this cup is the blood of the covenant for the forgiveness of sins. That's why Paul can say, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Christ is our Passover lamb, our atoning sacrifice. But why is it necessary that Jesus resurrect? Well, because we need someone to have victory over the grave. We not only need someone to pay for the debt of sin, we need someone to conquer death itself. Sin has led to death. We need someone to resurrect and give us life. And the exodus, please hear this, the exodus, the going up out of Egypt toward Mount Sinai is a type of the resurrection of the dead. Egypt was the land of the dead. You always went down to Egypt. You always came up out of Egypt. And when Israel left Egypt in the Exodus, it was a picture of resurrection to new life. A kind of new creation, if you will. They were baptized into the Red Sea, Moses tell, or Paul tells us with regard to Moses in 1 Corinthians 10. And they emerged to new life as they ascended to Mount Sinai where God dwelt, where he would speak with them. And going up to Mount Sinai, they dwelled where God dwells in order that they might worship him. And now this whole picture of being a people guilty of sin and unwelcome in God's holy presence, except through an atoning sacrifice, is replayed in the Levitical cultists that you read about in the book of Leviticus. It's just replayed. Further, we're told by the prophet Isaiah about a second exodus. You know, this people of Israel, they move past Mount Sinai, they get the law, they go into the promised land. But they continue to have problems there. The people fall into wickedness, as do their kings, and eventually they get the curses promised in Deuteronomy and in Numbers and Leviticus. They get the curses that are promised. They're exiled from the land. 
as they're on their way out in exile because of sin, again, exile representing death, as they're way out, on their way out in exile because of sin, God sends prophets. And those prophets are like prosecuting attorneys. Here's what God commanded you to do. Here's your history. You deserve judgment. But God has promised to send the seed of the woman, the son of Abraham, the line of the tribe of Judah, the one who will come from the house of David himself, the king of Israel. He's promised to send him. He's coming. And he's coming with the spirit and with power. And he's going to save you. He's going to restore you to the land. You're going to have, if you will, another type of the exodus or resurrection. There's a second exodus coming. And Isaiah lays this out in Exodus language. And he tells us in Isaiah 49 that my servant Israel is going to come, which this later gets applied to Christ by Simeon in Luke 2 and by Paul um, in Acts. This, This Messiah is going to come, and he's not only going to save Israel, he's going to save all the nations. It's too light of him for a thing for him to save the people of Israel. He's going to save all nations. And then we're told, we're told how he's going to do it. How is this Messiah going to come and lead us on a second exodus, a final exodus, an exodus out of the old Adamic creation of sin and death into the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation of righteousness and life? How is he going to accomplish that? Well, Isaiah 53, turn there. Isaiah 53, we get the means. And for the sake of time, I want to drop down to verse 4. Surely he, this is the servant, the suffering servant of Isaiah, the man of sorrows acquainted with grief, the incarnate son of God being prophesied about, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we were healed. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord did this. Look down at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. You hear the language? He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. He bears our iniquities. He is sacrificed for our sins and we're accounted righteous in him because he is the suffering servant. He is the servant of the Lord who unlike Israel and unlike Adam kept God's law in every regard, was wholly innocent and undefiled, was tempted in every way yet without sin. He's going to come and save you through this atoning sacrifice of the Christ is the means of the second exodus, our redemption. Now, that was a little bit of background to just get to the last part of here, Luke 9. Go back to Luke 9. You're going to say you're on the second point. The last two will come fast. Last three will come fast. 
Luke 9, Luke 9. Because I've given you the background I need to give you. Remember, Jesus has just told them the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day, be raised. Now go down to verse 28. He talks about taking up your cross and following Jesus. Now we have a new scene, but notice where Luke puts the scene. Now about, days, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. They often went to the mountain to meet with the Lord. And he was praying, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. They're seeing the transfigured glory of the incarnate Son of God in front of them. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. And they're speaking with him. Now notice, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Okay, this is where the King James is more helpful. They appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus. In the Greek, his exodon. Do you hear that? Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, come to Jesus in his transfigured glory and they talk to him about his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And what do they hear said of him? Verse 35, and a voice came out of the cloud saying this, is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Matthew chapter 2. The beloved son, the chosen one, God's firstborn son, was about to accomplish an exodus at Jerusalem. He would offer himself as the atoning sacrifice of Passover on the cross and then accomplish an exodus from the grave in his resurrection. Now let me carry this a bit further. They were going to ascend to Mount Sinai. Remember Israel ascended to Mount Sinai after the resurrection, the exodus. They ascended to Mount Sinai to dwell in the presence of God. Now look at Luke 9 and verse 51. Go down. Verse 51. When the days drew near... For him to be taken up, literally, for his ascension. For his ascension, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Hear this, please. Jesus was going to Jerusalem. He set his face for that, not just to be our Passover lamb, though that is certainly included, and not just to lead an exodus from the grave by resurrection, though that was certainly included, but also that he might ascend. Why would he ascend? He would ascend into the presence of the Most High God. He would sit down at his right hand. He would be given authority over all, all nations, over heaven and earth, and he would send forth his spirit. And why does that matter? Because Isaiah 32, 15, Ezekiel, Joel, all tell us that this Messiah who is who has the spirit without measure, is going to come pour out his spirit upon us. And why do we care about that? Because that spirit comes, the Holy Spirit comes, and unites us to Christ through faith, so that we are his, and he is ours. So that Christ and all his benefits belong to you and to me, by his grace and for his glory. And so he wants to go and ascend. So he can send the spirit and bless us with his work accomplished on our behalf. And his fate is set, face is set to Jerusalem. The third point, go back to Luke 24, 47. 
Like I said, I'm taking the 10 minutes I lost, which gives me four and a half. Look at Luke 24, 47. And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. The apostles, here's what I'm getting at. We preach the gospel among all nations as commanded. We preach the gospel among all nations as commanded. The apostles were eyewitnesses to Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection among all nations. And Luke actually uses that language technically in the book of Acts. When he says, you'll be my witnesses, he means they're actually eyewitnesses. And as eyewitnesses, they were being sent forth to proclaim these events. But I want you to note three quick things about their ministry. And I won't spend much time here, but just look. Verse 47. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in, all, in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You're to proclaim it. So when you come to the gospel, or excuse me, the, the book of Acts, to the second volume, when you come to Acts, what you hear over and over again is verbs for proclaiming, preaching, teaching, speaking. They're prolific in Acts. Even when they use the word dialogue, which they sometimes do, the dialogue was an authoritative teacher who was teaching a crowd and they were asking questions and they were having a back and forth. You see these across the book of Acts and you hear the emphasis again and again that they were authoritative and bold preachers. By bold, it means they were clear in the face of fear. That's Stephen J. Thompson, the Acts of the Risen Lord. He says that in his book. They were clear in the face of fear. They proclaimed him. What do they proclaim? Facts. They proclaim the facts of the gospel, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what they proclaimed. You see it in every evangelistic sermon. And they proclaimed doctrine. Now this is just me ripping off J. Gresham Machen and Christianity and liberalism, which you haven't read, you should read. It was written almost 100 years ago, and you feel like the guy is like peeping over the shoulder of our current culture right now. But he says you preach facts and you preach doctrine. It's not just that Christ did this, it's that he did it for you and for your salvation. So you need to repent and receive the forgiveness of sins. Every single evangelistic sermon in Acts, the apostles follow this pattern. Life, death, resurrection of Christ, repent, believe, receive the forgiveness of your sins, and the gift of the Holy Spirit, which really is the gift of new life. What does repentance assume about us? I mean, we state it, you need to repent of what? Rebellion against God's law. What does the forgiveness, the need for the forgiveness of sins assume about us? It assumes we're sinners who've incurred a debt of guilt before the bar of God's justice. His justice bears down on us. In other words, Jesus is assuming, he's assuming what would have been clear from the Old Testament. You need forgiveness for your sin because of your guilt before God. You need an atoning sacrifice to absorb God's justice against you. Please hear me. You must hear this. Penal substitution is not some Western legal concept based upon the psychology of a reformer named Martin Luther. There are scholars saying that today. There are missiologists saying that today. That is utter, unadulterated nonsense. Penal substitution is the gospel. 
It's based on the teaching of Moses. And as a historical tidbit, Moses was not a Western Enlightenment thinker. Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. No sinner can enter into God's holy presence apart from his atoning sacrifice. And we're to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You don't have to figure out what the task is. It's just been laid out clearly for you. Just do it. Be faithful to it. Fourth, we preach the gospel by the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. I really have no time for this point. Verse 49, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Listen, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, all promise the Holy Spirit's coming. He's going, when he comes, it's going to begin the new creation. The new creation begins with the coming of the Holy Spirit. He's poured out in the end times. So that we would be united to Christ. So that we would be members of the new creation. Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And he's saying the Holy Spirit's going to come. I'm going to ascend and I'm going to pour the Holy Spirit upon you. And the new creation is going to begin. And you are going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You're going to make me known in every tribe and tongue and nation. B.B. Warfield commented on this. He said, the Holy Spirit is no, li- no longer like a pent-up stream that's trickling into Israel. No, the dam has broken. And the river of the Holy Spirit is pouring forth from Christ's heart and floods the whole earth with the nation, with the, wait, excuse me, with the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And Jesus told the apostles that the Holy Spirit would not come well, excuse me, would come not many days from now. And so they wait for him and he comes at Pentecost. And when he comes, what do they do? They preach Christ. Him crucified and resurrected. Your need for repentance and forgiveness of sins. We don't need to look for new methods. We don't need to look for new measures. We don't need to alter the message to make it more palatable. Why? Because we're not depending on techniques or gimmicks or programs or even fresh winds of the Holy Spirit. We're depending on the Spirit speaking through his word as we proclaim Christ to the lost. Finally, we preach the gospel that's attended with Christ's blessing. I labored about whether to leave this off or not, but I have to include it because you need to hear this last word. Verse 50 through 53. Then he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. I want you to understand this. He's about to ascend. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. At the beginning of the first old Adamic creation, what's the first word God hear? Or the people hear from God? The word of blessing as they're sent out to spread the knowledge of the glory of God across the face of the earth. And when Jesus teaches his apostles at his resurrection ascension, when the new creation is going to begin after he ascends and he sends the Holy Spirit, what's the word they hear in the midst of their commission? A blessing from Jesus. The blessing of the new creation. And I don't want you to think we're too far removed from Exodus. If you remember the Exodus account, the Passover lamb is sacrificed. The blood atoning sacrifice is given for their sins. They then have the Exodus out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the 
toward, into the wilderness and to Mount Sinai, where they dwell with God and Aaron the priest before they ascend the hill. We see this specifically in Leviticus 9. After the atoning sacrifice is offered, after the peace offering is given, Aaron the priest holds up his hands and he blesses them. And we hear this emphasis. Then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them, was carried up into heaven. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You heard that message from the great high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we go out with that same blessing and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful. We're thankful for this gospel message that we've been entrusted by our Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful that you decreed it in eternity past, that you prophesied it throughout the Old Testament through your prophets, and that you fulfilled it in our Lord Jesus Christ and that you applied it to us by the sending of the Holy Spirit. We pray we would be faithful to this gospel message. We would rejoice in the good news we've been given and we would tell it on the mountain. We would let everyone know in every tribe and tongue and nation that Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb was sacrificed, that he has resurrected, accomplished his exodus, that he has ascended to you to heaven and he has anchored us there with him and he will carry us all the way home. Pray that we would trust him and give thanks for him. Father, we're thankful for patience of your people as I go over time. We pray that you would protect their ears from any error that may have come from me, that your son would be exalted, your word would be returning, would not return void, but would do the work for which it was sent forth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.